0: Welcome back to the listener's commentary on the book of Galatians. In this session, we're going to be looking at Galatians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. Here, Paul is continuing his autobiographical section where he's defending his message and his ministry for the sake of defending the gospel. Paul began that in chapter 1, and we looked at that in the last session. Here, he continues that with a second snapshot from his life, Uh, an event that occurred in Jerusalem, as he says, 14 years later. Um, Now, bear in mind that Paul, as we said, is giving three major snapshots from his life, probably events that the Judaizers were using in their presentation and portrayal of Paul, and they're using to kind of put their own spin on it to say that the Galatians needed to become Jews. And Paul is taking those snapshots and giving the truth of the story, clarifying things. That's probably what's going on. And so here we have a snapshot from Paul's life again, and it deals with um, this event in Jerusalem. And the main point Paul is going to make is that the Jerusalem leaders upheld Paul's gospel and upheld Paul's ministry and and as he says, gave him the right hand of fellowship and and said, go do what you're doing. We fully support that. And so Paul wasn't called to account to chastise him. Paul wasn't called to account and then kind of limited and hamstrung in his ministry. Paul came to Jerusalem, presented what he was preaching. The Jewish leadership discussed the issue, and they concluded that Paul's gospel was right, his ministry was legitimate, and they sent him out in good conscience to continue carrying out the ministry that he had been. Now with that as the context, let's then look at some of the details of this section. Uh, Paul writes in Galatians chapter 2 verse 1, Then after an interval of 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas. And there is some ambiguity here as to 14 years after what event. It could be 14 years after Paul's conversion as in chapter 1. Paul went up to Jerusalem the first time, three years after his conversion, and then after an interval of 14 years, he went up again. So it could be counting from his conversion, um, or it could be counting from the time he left, when he was there for just a couple weeks, as he described in chapter 1. And it's certainly not clear. Frankly, it probably doesn't matter a whole lot. It seems to me the most natural reading is... Uh, 14 years after his first Jerusalem visit, that he went up to Jerusalem three years after he left and spent some time in Damascus, then fled from Jerusalem after only being there for two weeks, and then 14 years later, he went up again. That seems the most natural reading of it, but uh, it's, not, it's certainly not clear, and um, it's probably not that big of a deal in the grand scheme of the chronology of Paul's life. And so Paul goes up to Jerusalem, Fourteen years later, uh, he he goes up with Barnabas, who he has uh, become kind of partners in ministry with. When you read the book of Acts, you see that Barnabas had come to uh, the church at Antioch uh, in northern, uh, kind of on the northeastern coast of the Mediterranean. Realized, man, they got a good thing going here, and there's Gentiles in the church, and he had met Paul when Paul was in Jerusalem the first time, and. And knew that Paul's ministry was aimed towards the Gentiles. So Barnabas goes in, uh, to Tarsus, which is around the corner from Antioch, and picks up Paul, brings him back. And they've been working in ministry together. And so Barnabas is with him for this, this meeting in Jerusalem. And it says, taking Titus along also. Uh, well, this is interesting because Titus is never mentioned in the book of Acts. And so we don't really know when and how Titus got connected with Paul. So what's interesting here is to realize, oh man, Titus was involved with Paul and his ministry this early on in Paul's, in Paul's service to Christ. I mean, that's pretty interesting because we just don't know when they connected, but apparently it was fairly early on. So uh, Barnabas goes with Paul, Titus goes with Paul, and they go up to Jerusalem. It says in verse 2, it was because of a revelation that I went up. Again, we don't know exactly the nature of this revelation, we don't know exactly the content of that revelation, but somehow, some sort of prophetic message, presumably, or maybe a dream to Paul, don't really know, somehow Paul got a, a revelation from God that he really should go to Jerusalem and deal with this issue. And so, they head to Jerusalem, and verse 2 continues, and Paul says, and I submitted to them the gospel which I preach among the Gentiles. And so Paul has been doing enough preaching ministry that his gospel has sort of become well-known and it's stirring up some issues. And so Paul comes to Jerusalem and he lays out his gospel to them. And what's, I think, significant about this is in the snapshot we saw at the end of chapter one, Paul kind of defends his independence from Jerusalem and from the Jerusalem leadership. But here, he also shows his cooperation with the Jerusalem leadership. And those two are really important, I think, as we try to understand Paul and understand his ministry. Yes, indeed, he received his gospel from Revelation, not from men. And in that sense, he was independent of Jerusalem. And yet he's not a maverick who's going to do his own thing and just, you know, wave his hand at Jerusalem and say, good riddance to you and go out and do his own thing. He knows there needs to be partnership and cooperation for his gospel ministry if his gospel ministry is going to really achieve what Jesus wants it to achieve. He can't just be a maverick doing his own thing. Judaism was split between, you know, Jews, Samaritans and Gentiles and in Christ, Paul knows that God wants one family, one family of God that's composed of Jews and Gentiles together. And so if he doesn't have the support of and the cooperation with the Jerusalem church, then then God's new family in Christ is going to be split along these same lines. And Paul will have none of it. And so he goes to Jerusalem and he just lays out, here's the gospel that I am preaching among the Gentiles. And it says, he did so in private, uh, to those who are reputation, to the leadership. So this is a meeting of Paul with the leadership of the Jerusalem church to lay out his gospel because he says at the end of verse 2, for fear that I might be running or had run in vain. Now what does Paul mean by that? Does Paul mean that oh man, maybe my gospel's wrong. Well, no, we know he doesn't mean that because he's given a vigorous defense of his gospel in chapter 1. So he does not he's not worried about his gospel being in error or being false. So what does he mean when he says, for fear that I might be running or had run in vain? Well, what Paul means is that... Um, his ministry was going to be hamstrung and would not be as effective and not achieve the aim that Jesus desired, the prophets had looked forward to, if he and Jerusalem weren't on the same page, if he didn't have the support of the Jerusalem church, and if they weren't on the same page, then there was going to be this division in the church, and it was going to hamstrung his ministry, because God wants one family composed of Jews and Gentiles working together. Paul knew that. He knew that by revelation. He knew that by the teaching of the prophets in the Old Testament as they look forward to the days of Messiah. This is what God was going to do. So he knew this scripturally. He knew this by virtue of his own meeting of Jesus. And so he needed cooperation at this point. And so that's his fear. Is my ministry going to be kind of its own little side, eddy out here, uh, not in sync with Jerusalem, or are we going to be on the same page? And so he submits his gospel to them. What's the result of this? Well, verse three gives the main result of this. Verse three, Paul says, and not even Titus who was with me, even though he was a Greek. So Titus is a Gentile and Titus is a worker with Paul ministry. Titus is sort of like exhibit A of a Gentile Christian to the leadership there in Jerusalem. Here's a Gentile Christian. And what was the response? Well, not even Titus who was with me, though he was a Greek, was compelled to be circumcised. All right, so that there we go. Now we know the issue that's, that's being debated and addressed in this meeting in Jerusalem. Um, this, the issue is, do Gentiles like Titus have to be circumcised and thus practically convert to Judaism in order to be saved, in order to be Christians, in order to be part of the people of God? What is the status of Gentiles? Do they, need to, uh, do they need to convert to Judaism to be full-fledged members of the people of God? Or do they come in as Gentiles? And the result with Titus here is not even Titus was compelled to be circumcised. They never forced him to do that. They recognized, no, he is a member in good standing, a full-fledged member of the people of God, fully justified and fully right before God. Titus wasn't compelled to be circumcised. Well, where did this issue come from then? What what was the problem? Well, verse 4 tells us, But it was because of the false brethren secretly, secretly brought in who sneaked in to spy out our liberty, which we have in Christ Jesus, in order to bring us bondage. This wasn't a, a, a Jerusalem leadership belief, right? That's the point. This wasn't The Jerusalem ble- leadership didn't feel like Titus needed to be circumcised. They didn't feel like Gentile Christians needed to be circumcised. Where did it come from? It came from some false brethren. False brethren, people who claimed to be Christians and yet really didn't understand the gospel and wanted to make uh, Gentiles into Jews in order to be saved. And as far as Paul is concerned, that is such a violation of the gospel, such a violation of everything that that the, the gospel is about, what God is working for, and what the prophets predicted, that they are false brethren. They don't have a true understanding of the gospel. And so these false brethren secretly brought in, so it's because of the false brethren that sneaked in, right? They sneaked in to spy out our liberty, our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus, our freedom to, to apart from Torah, apart from circumcision, apart from law-keeping, they sneaked in, they spied that out, and they're trying to force Gentiles uh, to keep the Torah and to become Jews in order to be part of the people of God. And and Paul says, that's an effort to bring us into bondage. That's an effort to bring us into slavery. Pay attention to that word bondage or slavery. That's going to become a major theme in chapters 3 and 4 of this letter. And that's Paul's concern, that the Torah is a, a form of bondage that we are done with now in Messiah That is going to be something Paul is going to have to defend at length and explain at length, and he'll do so beginning at the end of chapter 2 all the way through chapter 4. But for now, he says, this problem arose from some false brethren who sneaked in, and that was their goal. But, he says in verse 5, we did not yield in subjection to them for even an hour, for even a moment. Right? We, meaning Paul, Barnabas, Titus, and the Jerusalem leadership, These false brethren, this was their idea, it wasn't the Jerusalem leadership's idea, and we who had this meeting, we didn't yield to subjection to them for even a moment so that the truth of the gospel would remain with you. Notice for Paul, this is not a secondary issue, this issue of being circumcised, and the Torah. This is a gospel issue, and Paul is coming to Jerusalem to say, what does the gospel really say, and where do Gentiles really stand? And the conclusion is, the Gentiles stand in good standing in the gospel, in the Messiah, so we didn't yield to them for even a moment, so that the truth of the gospel would remain with you. Because here in Galatia, as we talked about in the backstory, the very same false brethren are sneaking into the churches in Galatia and they're saying the exact same thing that they were saying that led to this meeting in Jerusalem. You guys need to be circumcised. You guys need to become Torah observant. You guys need to keep the Old Testament law so that you can really inherit the blessing of Abraham, so that you can really be justified and part of the people of God. So these same false brethren are causing the same issue in Galatia and Paul is saying, this meeting in Jerusalem dealt with that once and for all. So I don't know what those Judaizers are telling you, but here's the truth of the matter. We didn't yield in subjection to these false brethren for even an hour so that you could, you could stay free in the gospel. Now, verse 6, through the end of this section, Paul says, and here's how it played out with those who have reputation, the pillars, the high-standing people in the Jerusalem church. He says this, "...but from those who are of high reputation..." What they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. And that word partiality is really God doesn't look on the face. God doesn't play favorites. Um, he doesn't look on people's social status, status or standing. God doesn't play favorites. And so what, what, what they were, you know, reputed to be makes no difference to me. God plays, doesn't play favorites. Well, those who have reputation contributed nothing to me. In other words, they added nothing to his gospel. He doesn't mean that Paul isn't being caustic and saying, I just wiped my hands with them because they didn't matter. That's not what Paul's point. Paul's point is, they added nothing to me, to my ministry, to my message, to my gospel. On the contrary, verse 7, seeing that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, for he who effectually worked in Peter for his apostleship to the circumcised effectually worked in me also. And so these pillars, these of reputation, could see that that God had entrusted the gospel to me. How could they see it? Well, they could see it, uh, he says in verse 8, by the same, the same effectual work in Peter and in Paul. What does he mean by that? He means miracles. Paul, in fact, in Corinth, the Corinthian letter, refers to the miracles as the signs of an apostle. Right? And so... God worked through Peter by performing miracles, credentialing him as an apostle. And guess what? God worked through Paul, doing miracles through him, credentialing Paul also as an apostle. So it's clear that God's involved in both these with observable, tangible, miraculous evidence that he is authorizing them for these ministries. So seeing that, seeing that God had entrusted both Peter and Paul the gospel with different spheres of influence, Peter to the circumcised, Paul to the uncircumcised, um, and recognizing, verse 9, the grace given to me, James, Cephas, and John, who were reputed to be pillars, James, Peter, and John, the three bigwigs in the church at Jerusalem who were reputed to be pillars, gave to Barnabas and I the right hand of fellowship. Um, they gave us the partner partnership in gospel ministry. The idea of fellowship is partnership. They extended their right hand of fellowship. In other words, they said, no, we are partners in this gospel ministry. We have different spheres of focus. Uh, you focus on the uncircumcised. Peter's focusing on the circumcised. But we are partners in this gospel ministry. And so they they gave them the right hand of fellowship so that we might go to the Gentiles and they might go to the circumcised. They only asked us to remember the poor, the very thing that Paul was eager to do. And so the end result of this uh, meeting in Jerusalem was that um, Paul and Barnabas Um, are partners in gospel ministry with the church leaders in Jerusalem and they upheld Paul's ministry. They upheld Paul's message. They added nothing to it. They made no changes to it. They said, no, you're in the right and God is working through you. Go to the Gentiles and preach the gospel to them and welcome them in. All right. So that is the the details of the section. Now we need to step back from that. And there's one really important question that we need to ask and wrestle with before we wrap up this section. And that's this. What event is this referring to in the book of Acts? How does this kind of uh, harmonize with and coordinate with the book of Acts? So Traditionally, it has been customary among Bible scholars to see this event as lining up with the event described in Acts 15 and traditionally called the Jerusalem Conference or the Jerusalem Council. Um, that event in Acts 15 is dealing with the very same issue here, um, and it's motivated by some Jews who came from Jerusalem to Antioch and began telling the the Gentiles in Antioch that Paul needed that, that Paul needed to circumcise them in order for them to really be saved. Paul's like, okay, we got to deal with this, and so Paul leaves Antioch, goes down to Jerusalem, and meets with the leadership in the Jerusalem church, and has a, a big meeting, and they hash this out. They conclude that uh, they don't need to be circumcised. They send a letter to the uh, back to the church at Antioch saying, "Here's the only thing we really ask you to do," and this, that's that. All right. Traditionally, that's what this is, this event has been lined up with, and you can see why. There's a lot of overlap there. But in the last, oh, decade or 15, 20 years or so, it has become more customary among some Bible scholars to line this up with uh, the famine relief visit in Acts chapter 11. In Acts chapter 11, Paul and Barnabas are sent from Antioch with some uh, money uh, in order to care for the needy Christians in, um, in Jerusalem. And so, scholars have said, well, that's that must be what this is referring to in, in Galatians, because otherwise Paul left out one of his visits to Jerusalem, and that seems inappropriate. And so that has led a lot of scholars to say, so this must be referring to the famine relief visit. And so the major reasons for saying it must line up with the famine relief visit is that, well, if it's if it's not, then Paul skipped over the famine relief visit. uh, And it seems like he's, you know, kind of lining out his visits to Jerusalem. And so he went from his first visit after his conversion to a later visit and skipped one in the middle. Well, that would be inappropriate. And that's really the primary reason for this, uh, for concluding that. Uh, And then with that motivation to conclude that, then scholars have said, well, what, can we be certain of that? And some have said, well, the chronology seems to fit. Or uh, some have said, well, obviously the mention of the poor here in chapter 2 certainly seems to fit. And so they've given some reasons for that. And so now, as a result, we're left to kind of figure out okay, well, which event is this referring to? The famine relief visit in Acts 11 or the Jerusalem conference in Acts 15. Frankly, again, it's not a huge issue. Um, you know, we don't have to have all of the chronology of Paul's life totally figured out. We don't have to identify uh, what event this is referring to to get Paul's point in Galatians. So it's not like a a massive issue, but it does help us understand this event, understand Paul's ministry, and even maybe the chronology of Paul's ministry a little bit. So which event is it, in my opinion? Well, I, I look at it and I think... Uh, I'm kind of with Moise Silva on this one, who in one of his books, Moise Silva, Bible scholar and commentator says, when you look at Galatians 2 and you look at Acts 15, you have the exact same people, you have the exact same problem, you have the exact same conclusion and the exact same solution in both Galatians 2 and Acts 15. And so Moise Silva says, is it really necessary to conjecture that we have two meetings within the span of just a few years that involve the same people, deal with the same issue, reach the same conclusion, and it all happens just a few years apart. And I think Moise Silva's dead on on that. Um, there is, and it would be conjecture, because in Acts 11, there is zero mention of this issue, this meeting, these people. Um, in Acts 11, all that's there uh, is um, Paul and Barnabas deliver money to the elders in the church at Jerusalem. That's it. That's all that's mentioned about that famine relief visit. There's no mention of a meeting. There's no mention of an issue. There's no mention of a conclusion. There's no mention of any of this. And so Moise Soba says it's pure conjecture to say that what's described in uh, Galatians chapter 2 is the famine relief visit because there's nothing, no connection, no overlap. And yet in Acts chapter 15, there's like massive overlap, exact same people, exact same issue, and all of that. And so I think it just makes more sense to see Galatians chapter 2 as uh, paralleling uh, Acts chapter 15. And when you recognize that those two connect, and then you read Acts 15, you you see what's going on. Uh, And you see the kind of the historical background that lies behind this, and you see the outcome of that. Um, And so um, Acts chapter 15, Paul and Barnabas come to Jerusalem because some uh, brothers, some false brethren, as he calls them in Galatians 2, come to Antioch and began telling the, the churches there that they... Uh, The Christians there, the Gentile Christians, that they need to be circumcised in order to be saved. They need to keep the law of Moses. There becomes then a big brouhaha, big disturbance in the church at Antioch. Paul and Barnabas and others, it says in Acts 15, we know from Galatians 2, one of those others is Titus, travel down to Jerusalem. They meet with the church and then they gather with the church leadership. That's what happens in Acts 15. They retire to a private meeting with the church leadership, just as in Galatians chapter 2. And Paul lays out what he's been preaching among the, the Gentiles. And he shares kind of the experience of his ministry and the gospel he's been preaching. They hash that out. There's scripture that's quoted. There's recounting of Paul's uh, miracles, um, just as in Acts or Galatians chapter 2. And at the end of the whole matter, James, Peter, John, and the church leadership give to Paul the right hand of fellowship. They write a letter to the the, the Gentile Christians, this delivered, ironically, not only to the church at Antioch, but also to the churches of Galatia uh, after, when Paul goes back and visits them a second time. And we don't know all the details of that, but they eventually get this little letter from the the church, or yeah, from the church leadership in this meeting in Jerusalem, uh, delivered to them there in Galatia. So it coordinates best with Acts chapter 15. and So I see this event in Galatians 2, 1 through 10 as The same event as Acts chapter 15, it just makes the most sense. In fact, chronologically, I don't see how it could be Acts 11, even though some of those scholars who take Acts 11 say the chronology fits best. I mean, after 14 years, well, if Paul is converted in 34 or 35, which is the standard time period when Paul is converted, around 34 or 35, he returns to Jerusalem three years later, so you're talking 37 or 38, and then you add 14 years onto that, we're at the earliest, if, Paul, if we're counting from Paul's conversion, at the earliest, we're around um, 48 or 49. Um, and at the latest, we're around 50 to 52. Right? So we're 48 to 49. Here's the thing. The famine relief visit happens in connection with the death of Herod Agrippa in, in Acts chapter 12. And so those two things are Um, connected in the chronology of the book of Acts. And the death of Herod Agrippa in Acts chapter 12, we know from secular history exactly when that happened. It's one of the fixed dates in Paul's life. That event happened in AD 44. So that means the famine relief visit had to happen right around AD 44. Well, if you put 14 years, even from Paul's conversion, you have Paul being converted around 30 or 31. Jesus was crucified in AD 30. Some put Jesus' crucifixion in AD 33. I don't see how the 14 years fits with the famine relief visit at all. I just think it's impossible. And so all the details, in my opinion, fit best with Acts chapter 15. And so the event described in Galatians chapter 2 is the same event described in Acts chapter 15, the Jerusalem conference, and it has the same conclusion. Paul, go preach the gospel to the Gentiles. We don't require anything of them in Acts 15. They list off just four expedients that uh, have to do with keeping the the reputation of the Christians and the church um, acceptable in the synagogue so that they can continue to have ministry to the Jews. That's it. And that's what happens in Acts chapter 15. So if you want to know more about this event in Galatians chapter 2, you might flip over to the book of Acts chapter 15 and read what's going on there just to see how the two events line up and to see what the backstory is to this little event. All right. With all of that then... Um, Here we have, again, just a snapshot from Paul's life. And this snapshot is, once again, intended to defend the gospel that Paul preaches. And the outcome of it is that Gentiles come into the family of God as Gentiles. They don't have to become Jews in order to do that. Um, That they are free in Christ just as they are. So let me offer two kind of concluding reflections on this section for us. The first is this, and is really at the heart of Paul's point here, and will become significant throughout Galatians, and that is, if you draw two boxes, picture two boxes in your mind, two squares. One square is labeled Torah, the other square is labeled Messiah. Uh, Where are the people of God found? Where is a right relationship with God found, and where are the people of God found? Paul's whole contention in the book of Galatians, beginning really in force here in this episode, is that the people of of God are no longer found in the Torah box. They're found in the Messiah box. Um, And to require circumcision and keeping the Torah is to effectively negate the gospel. The gospel is now preaching that Messiah has come. He is the world's true Lord and King, and it's in him that the people of God are found. And so um, that is really fundamental to us as God's people today. Where do we find the people of God? Um, Well, we find the people of God in Christ In the Messiah. And that phrase shows up over and over again in Paul's letter. So, all people, regardless of status, regardless of rank, regardless of heritage, regardless of race, regardless of religious background, all people are free to enter into relationship with God and join His people simply by putting their confidence in Jesus as Messiah. In other words, the gospel redefines where you find and how you enter into the people of God. You find them in Christ, and you enter into that by faith in Christ. That's the point, point. and that's what's being defended here in this little uh, section of Galatians and in this major meeting in the early church where they say, no, you don't have to become Jews to be saved because the people of God are no longer defined in Torah. Very important. Uh, The second little reflection I want to offer is, uh, again, from what happens in this story and and really from Paul's... um Concerted effort for there to be unity, we see here Paul working for unity in practice, and Paul's example ought to motivate us to greater cooperation. Uh, on the one hand, Paul can affirm his commission that he's independent of the apostles and he's independent of the Jerusalem Church, but on the other hand, um, he he can really say, "Man." We need to work together for the sake of mission and ministry. The health of the church, the reputation of the gospel, and the effectiveness of ministry needs cooperation from Jerusalem. And Paul, therefore, sets a really strong example for us of unity in practice. And so may we learn to recognize, in the words of N.T. Wright, the gracious work of God in and through those who work in a different way with different people, with different traditions but for the same true gospel and for the same Messiah. And um, Paul sets that example for us that we would work and labor for cooperation in gospel ministry together because the effectiveness of the mission depends on it.